education has become the center of our ability to preserve our economy and our democracy. And we've got to take education as a system much more seriously. That's going to be hard to do. So education will continue to divide us. And I think that's the most difficult problem we have. And then finding ways to treat education and the labor market as all one system without doing tracking and without losing the non-economic value of education, which is crucial. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. In today's episode, our host, Salvatrice Kumo, talks with Dr. Anthony Carnevale, professor and director of education and the workforce at Georgetown University, and he shares with us from his data what we know now and where we go from here to better connect education and the economy. He outlines some of our hurdles in order to move forward to create a better collective future. There's a lot to dive into, so let's get started. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The Future of Work. I am your host, Salvatrice Kumo, and with me today, I have Dr. Anthony Carnavali, Research Professor and Director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Good morning. Morning to you. For those who are listening who are not familiar with your work or with the Georgetown University Center on Education and Workforce, can you share just a little bit about your role and what you do there and and really the purpose of the center? Well, in the end, what the center is about is the relationship between skill and education. Uh, We really were established because in the middle 1980s, uh, it became very apparent in the United States that we were shifting ground, an economic revolution, really. Uh, After 1983, after the 1980-81 recession, the labor market began a dramatic shift uh, in upskilling and moving us from an economy where most of the good jobs, damn near 70 percent, required only a high school degree and progressively after the mid-80s, largely due to technology change tied to trade, we've moved to an economy where most of the good jobs now require at least some post-secondary education. Not all of them, about 17 percent of good jobs, which in our definition are jobs where you can make 
65 grand a year. Uh, about 17% of those go to high school graduates still, although that number is declining. And that 17% is virtually all male. You know, as we're kind of transitioning a little bit now towards post-pandemic, post-COVID, how is that shifting? What are you seeing as a shift to some of the jobs, the emerging occupations that are, are on the rise? And what might be some areas of interest that we should be looking at? What are some things that we should be looking at? Well, first, COVID may be on the wane, one hopes, uh, but uh, it will leave lasting scars on both individuals and institutions that will persist. This is especially true for the less selective inst- uh, post-secondary institutions in America. The other aspect is it will leave scars on individuals, especially uh, young people who don't come from advantaged backgrounds. And the latest research shows that those scars will remain for most of people's careers because, to put it maybe too simply, the first job you get is really what predicts the second job you get and so on. So the absence of jobs or the absence of a quality first job will affect your career trajectory through your lifetime. So COVID is uh, is not done with us. It's certainly not done with young people. uh, And it's certainly not done with educational institutions, especially at the post-secondary level. And when you talk about scars, what scars might be lasting for us as educational institutions? What might we be facing, you think, within your research that we should, they're probably going to, you know, like you said, have a lasting effect and may or may not go away. One of the aspects of COVID that is interesting is that COVID has an effect all its own, but it's also the gateway to a whole series of effects on educational institutions that were going to happen anyway. That is, in general, the most certain thing we know in social science is usually demography. Uh, Demographers have the advantage of knowing what's coming. And the demography tells us that we're going to get a very substantial increase in rich kids in America, uh, which means that selective institutions, the University of Virginia, the Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, selective institutions are going to do fine because the number of families in America with parents, both of whom have a bachelor's degree or better, is growing very rapidly. So that's all part of the increasing economic inequality in the United States, but it is of great benefit to selective colleges. Now, for the non-selective colleges and the community colleges, it's an entirely different story, because while the number of rich kids is growing, uh, the overall number of young people available to go to college is declining across the country especially in New England and in the mid-Atlantic states. There is growth in 18 to 24-year-olds in the South and West, but virtually all of that growth comes from families with lower income, with fewer degrees among the parents, uh, with a history of non-completion among that population and so on. So uh, the demography all by itself, a lot of people will, I think, talk about in years to come, pre-COVID and post-COVID. But a lot of what's going to happen would have happened COVID or not. Are there variables to perhaps some of those implications? 
just means that the relationship between education in America will continue to divide us because the mm. relationship between education and economic opportunity has become overpowering. That is now pretty much, unless you're one of that 17%, mostly boys who can make it out of high school to a good job, mm. pretty much your economic future depends on your post-secondary experience, which has made life difficult for young people. That is back in the 1970s, for example, young people went to high school, graduated from high school, uh, got a job. By age 25, uh, on average in America, uh, a young man or a young woman would achieve the average wage for their gender. Of course, the wage for females was much lower, but both genders achieved the average wage for their gender. And economists, uh, it's kind of a back of the envelope standard we use. Once you hit the average wage for your gender, it is generally believed that you are economically independent and capable of family formation. What has changed most dramatically is that while we were able to do that by age 25 in the aggregate, uh, now it takes till age 32 uh, on average to reach economic independence. So uh, it's a long journey. There are plenty of opportunities to get lost along the way. Talking about the scars, talking about the divide, and knowing what we know based on the research that's out there, and as community colleges really think about and imagine what might an economic recovery look like and where those jobs would be, in your perspective, what might recovery look like? What do we need to do as a system to ensure that? that economic independence, the age of 32, that we can bring that down, that we are activating the population that's suffering the most from all of this. What might that look like through your lens? Well, we in the end are not in charge of the economy. The economy is in charge of itself. Uh, and what we do know about change is that since the mid-80s, it has had a very strong skill bias. Okay. What does that mean, skill bias? It means that increasing skills are required to get a decent job, and we expect that that will continue. We do projections at Georgetown uh, and have done so through COVID. Our current projections, let me make assumptions about the recovery, which are relatively robust, but our current projections show that you know we had a very low jobs level in the middle of COVID that went all the way down to 145 million jobs. Uh, but that by 2030, we're projecting there will be about 168 million jobs and that the dominant growth will come at the bachelor's degree level. There'll be about 40 percent of the jobs and then you get about 30 percent that are middle skilled jobs, which is to say less than a bachelor's degree, more than a high school degree. And then, you know, you get another 30 percent that are high school jobs or only require high school uh, but most of them don't provide, only 17% of those are good jobs, whereas 75% of the BA jobs are good jobs, uh, and about 55% of the middle skill jobs are good jobs. So the economy is going to go on its own way, and at some point, the job distribution will continue to be driven by technology change. Now, there is another story out there 
but there's no evidence that it's true. And that is that technology AI will eat up a lot more jobs than technology has heretofore. But so far, there's no evidence of that. That is, when technology change started in the middle 80s, we were at about uh, a little less than 100 million jobs. Uh, We grew to over 150 million jobs before the virus hit. So, so far, technology has not reduced the overall number of jobs. It has certainly hurt people in particular jobs and particular industries. Notably, we basically shifted from an industrial economy to a service economy with all the job losses we're all aware of in manufacturing, for instance. So we know what the world will look like. If you if you want to find an industry where you're pretty sure to get a job, it is and has been for a long time healthcare. Uh, so we have a pretty good picture of the future unless the AI story is true. But at the moment, that's more science fiction. Could be true. The people who argue for that will tell you that they have no evidence, but they see this coming. But until it comes, it's just science fiction. And we're just evolving. We're evolving with technology as we move along. I keep reading about the fourth industrial revolution and how Technology plays a role in that, clearly. But how do you feel about that? Is that is that a thing? Or is, is, that, is that what you're calling science fiction? Is this fourth industrial revolution with AI really kind of taking over the world? That's what it feels like when you read some of these journals and articles. Well, they make great reading. <laughs> People have been writing those articles since the birth of industrialism in the West in the 1700s. Everybody thought back in the 1700s that Malthus, for instance very well-respected social scientist in his time, thought that there were going to be too many people and not enough food. The Luddites, led by by Ned Ludd, who was an industrial worker, uh, they went on huge destructive strikes, burning down factories because they believed the technology was going to take over all the jobs. Now, in their case, that sort of happened over several hundred years. But these stories, they attach to a fear in people uh, about work, The good news is if the AI people are right, we're going to be a very wealthy nation. The issue will be who gets the money, uh, not who gets the jobs. And this causes us to really rethink our infrastructure a little bit. Well, we are are losing the infrastructure race. We have been for a long time. How so? Our infrastructure is old and worn out. Yes. We've not invested sufficiently in it. There is one issue of concern that... Nations like China, because they're authoritarian, they see the future just as well as we do. And the bosses at the top of those societies can simply say, uh, we're going to invest in technology and build whole new cities if we want to, because the public has no right to veto their decisions. So there is a real issue at the moment as to whether or not democracy of the American kind is powerful enough to respond to the economic competition that's coming. And the infrastructure that we are operating in with our high schools and with our community colleges and just training in general that come from those those two institutions, we work really hard at trying to create these pathways from high school to community college so that we're creating significant movement on raising the bar of individuals of disproportionate populations or, or disadvantaged populations. Like, you know, we're really, really trying to connect in a way that we're not losing the folks that are coming from high school into community college. 
Some of that is under our control. There's lots that's not under our control. And I think it speaks to what you were saying about overall infrastructure, but how does legislation play, can legislation play a role in in our infrastructure design? Well, if the government doesn't do most of this, it's not going to happen. And that's true with respect to education as well. Private uh, investment in the development of infrastructure has been in decline for a very long time. So in the end, the question is if we can get it together enough as a people to unite behind a push to modernize ourselves, not just in roads, bridges, internet and all that stuff, but modernize ourselves socially as well. That is, we live in a country where at the moment, if you're a very smart, low-income kid uh, throughout your first several grades in grade school, that is, you come from, you get test scores and IQ scores in the top half of the population and you're disadvantaged, we know that about 30% of you will make it. That is, you'll get through college and get a good job, that 65 grand job minimum we're talking about, by age 28. And we should be proud of that. That is, 30% of our least advantaged but most talented kids do make it in America. The other way to look at that is 70% don't. Uh, But the, the other fact that is even more telling, I think, is that If you look at young kids who are in the bottom half of the score or test score distribution in American grade schools uh, and IQ tests in American grade schools, they're in the bottom half of the ability or talent distribution, however you want to say it, but they come from rich families. That is, they're in the top quartile of family, come from families in the top quartile of family income in America. Even though they're not the best students, 70% of them will make it to a good job through college and to a good job by age 28. So we live in a country where it is true that it's better to be rich than smart. We have failed, and that's a long story. I won't. (laughs) That's a long story how that happened. But that's where we sit at the moment. We have WIOA that kind of, for us, that's supposed to be a solution to bridging some of these gaps that we've talked about, supporting infrastructure, getting folks into jobs, et cetera, et cetera. In your findings, in your research, how do you feel WIOA kind of plays into the role of the future of work, our recovery? And, you know, we say we want to do all these things, yet we have some serious, complex infrastructure issues and wondering if WIOA kind of plays a role in that. WIOA is a good idea that never grew in America. That is, we're talking, I think now the appropriation is probably around six or seven billion dollars. It really begins with the Comprehensive Employment Training Act and the Carter administration, which was our first attempt to build a training system. We never did, and we still haven't. So the think in terms of higher ed, we drop five or six hundred billion a year on that. And we drop $8 billion on WIOA, which is job-related, so that WIOA is a good idea that doesn't matter very much. In the end, we are a nation without a job training or a counseling system. We don't really have career counseling in America. What we do have, because people are, have recognized this, largely because we came to a point where everybody felt they had to go to college, everybody believed it cost too much, and the public began to realize that 
something had to be done. And as a result of that, what's happened is that the political sphere, federal government, state governments, principally the feds, uh, feds have paid for it. We've built out a system in which we can actually track the economic returns, that is, whether or not you get a job and how much money you make by program level, not by institution. We tend to think of post-secondary education, higher education, for example, as an institutional creature. That is, you know, I go to this college, you go to that college, we identify with the college, not about the college. It's about the program you take. That's where the variation in employment and earnings occurs. So truthfully, that's why in America, 40% of bachelor's degrees in the right field earn more than the average graduate degree. And that's why 30% of associate degrees make more than bachelor's degrees. That's why there are lots of certificates like HVAC and heating, ventilation and air conditioning make more than BAs and a lot of people with graduate degrees, especially in education. So there is a, the labor market is distinctive in the sense that you have to have more education, but what you make pretty much depends on what you take. And we have not, we're gradually building a system that tracks at the program level. We have not used it. Uh, I don't know of every state or a lot of states because they got $850 million dollars from the federal government to do this and another 200 million from the Bush administration. Uh, Obama dropped the 850, Bush dropped a lesser amount, but he got it started. We do now know that as people like me know, because we have access to the data, if you tell me your program, I can tell you what you're going to make. So there is a, we're building out a system in response to the public demand that there be transparency and to some extent accountability in what colleges and other post-secondary training institutions deliver. But we're not there yet. If I can just throw out this question and feel free to answer it in any way, meaning either supported by research or not, what do you feel in your opinion is possible at this moment? Like what is truly possible with us examining the way we function as a system towards economic recovery? or towards training, or towards post-secondary education in general? In your opinion, what's possible, you think? I think what we know, and it's taken a long time to get there because we have been trying to reform our education system. The latest round of reforms really began in 1983 with the Nation at Risk report. And what we did then is we gradually moved up the pipeline. That first we reformed uh, grade school. When we got to high school, that is in the reform is basically test-based. We were trying to figure out how you could graduate from high school. Uh, but when it got to high school, we started thinking about jobs. And then eventually we moved from K-12 education to reforming higher ed, which is the hot and heavy uh, space for education reform at the moment. So we're almost done with that. The lesson we learned through all that, and it's really the new lesson, I think, is having done all that, we now know that the issue is systemic. That is, the first step toward a good job is good preschool. Mm -hmm. In the courts in America, we decided in 1973 that education was not a right. In the court case Rodriguez v. San Antonio, we very sort of shut the door on education as a right in America or any equal spending on education. And then 
we nailed the door shut with Milliken v. Bradley for those who follow these things by saying that you couldn't demand that school districts in the same local area spent their money based on the students' needs. So we basically blew that part of it. Since then, we have done relatively little. We did do some things that were helpful and I think laudatory, and that is after a nation at risk, uh, we decided that every American young person had a right to an academic education all the way through high school. That is, we came out with uh, what were those days called the new basics. Everybody supposed to take algebra too, basically is what it came down to. So in the end, that was a good thing. And the other reason we did that was we decided that the system that we had before that, which came out of the Second World War, notably led by a guy named James Conant, uh, something called the Comprehensive Education System, which basically meant that we were going to track people. That is, Conant believed that we only needed 5% of the high school class to go to college. The women were really, really not considered much in that. They were supposed to take home economics. The And the rest of the students, including the boys, would take shop. What a nation at risk did politically is it said we're not going to do any more tracking, that everybody gets the same curriculum. Now, that has caused a problem in and of itself, which is that people emerged from high school with better basic preparation, I would argue, because of the changes we've made. Uh, And the difficulty is that they're not prepared. Too many of them aren't prepared to go to college, and none of them have been prepared to get a job. So it all falls on higher education in the end, and there there are the access issues, the completion issues. And what is new in higher education and part of the overall, I would call it the new generation of education reform, is that we are now going to cross the river, so to speak, because of the thing that we always focused on in education is whether or not you complete it. Well, Uh, That is, of course, required, but it's not complete. What really matters from an economic point of view is can you get a job and is it a good job? And we're beginning to focus on that. Moving forward, as practitioners to this work, what, in your humble opinion, should we be focusing on moving forward? My role here at Pasadena City College is executive director of economic and workforce development. And then that, that can mean so many different things depending on how you look at it. But knowing what we know, what should I, you and others, what should we be focusing on to really make a substantial shift in the way we are preparing our folks for the workforce? Well, first of all, we should include that as an outcome goal in education. Uh, Most educators, and frankly, I'm not really one of them, even though I'm a college professor. I'm not an education expert. I'm a jobs expert, I suppose. But what the educators tell me is that we need to begin giving young people some sense of uh, some exposure to occupations as early as middle school. Not to say that we're going to start training them for jobs because that's tracking. We'd end up sending the lower income kids, black and Latino kids into plumbing and the other kids would go to, the white kids go to college. But we start young people thinking about this because it's a long process to figure out, given your work interests, your values, your abilities and talents, figuring out 
who you are and what you want to be. And then you've got to find a way to attach that to an education pathway and a career pathway once you hit the post-secondary system. So that there's a lot of emphasis now on that. It's occurring all over the place. Linked learning in California is an example of that sort of thing. There's a ton of that going on. And uh, but it doesn't reach that many kids, truthfully. So in the end, we've got to think more about the outcomes. The other piece of this, which is much more complicated, is that we've got to start breaking down the silos between our education institutions and our labor markets, uh, because the system is one in which, for the most part, we lose people in the cracks between the institution and transitioning from one institution or another, which is not to say we should have some sort of czar uh, who runs the whole thing, but we have to connect it to employers and we're certainly not going to have a czar there. So the in the end, we need to encourage new thinking. That is that it's all one system and connecting the parts of that system and providing the necessary counseling and supports throughout is crucial as well as uh, finding a way, which is not easy politically, to make sure that our public resources are matched to the needs of the students and not the wealth of the parents. Very powerful statement there. I think when you said it, what really resonated with me was we need to spend time breaking down silos and ideating closer. We could spend an entire day talking about how to do that and breaking down those silos because you're right, it is one system one system that's layered with support structure. Thank you so much for this chat. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience before we close? The one thing I would say in all of this is that uh, in the end, we now live in a society where human learning, human capital, really determines the success of the society on the whole, especially in economic terms, but more than that. We know that education, for example, it reduces, it inhibits the development of the authoritarian personality, for example, so that education has become the, the center of our ability to preserve our economy and our democracy. And we've got to take education as a system much more seriously. That's going to be hard to do. And I'm a professor at Georgetown. Uh, our applications doubled this year. So why should we worry about connecting back to the rest of the system? Virtually all the kids, except for 13% at Georgetown, are not eligible for Pell Grants. I suspect that the, the number of kids who are can afford and uh, have been educated to be able to attend Georgetown is just going to grow. So education will continue to divide us. And I think that's the most difficult problem we have and then finding ways to treat education and the labor market as all one system without doing tracking and without losing the non-economic value of education, which is crucial. Thank you. Those are two excellent points that we need to be focusing on. I greatly appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And I actually look forward to another episode because I think we've got, I've got some good nuggets here that, that I think we can spend a little more time on. Uh, thank you very much again. And for those who would like to connect to your center or to you, what might be the best way to do that? Just go online and look for the Center on Education and the Workforce at Georgetown. My email is on that site and 
that site pretty much represents what we're up to. Fantastic. We'll be sure to put that link in the show notes. Thanks again. Have a wonderful day and we'll chat soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.